Thank you for watching NTD Business Top Stories tonight. The World Economic Forum putting climate action high on the agenda. But electric vehicle chief Elon Musk isn't a fan of one of the group's efforts. The latest Twitter files drop, showing how Big Pharma tried to influence what content can be seen on social media. How do they do it? And China's economy slowing down last year, seeing one of its worst years in decades. What's Beijing's plan now? That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Don Ma here. The World Economic Forum opened in Switzerland today with climate change on top of the agenda. The head of the International Energy Agency touted the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, saying it would drive investment into cleaner energy. President Biden signed it into law last year. Inflation Reduction Act, in my view, the most important climate action after Paris 2015 agreement. At the same time, EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen outlined her Green Deal industrial plan. It aims to make it easier to push through subsidies for green industries. The EU's goal is to be climate neutral by 2050. She said competition and trade are key to speeding up clean tech and that Europeans need to get better at nurturing their own clean tech industry as the EU faces challenges from China and the United States. We know that we have a small window to invest in clean energy and innovation and clean tech before the fossil fuel economy becomes obsolete. Meanwhile, critics, including Elon Musk, have highlighted the WEF's lack of transparency and pushing of the Environmental, Social and Governance, or ESG, agenda. Despite founding the world's largest electric vehicle company, Musk is not a fan of ESG. On Sunday, he tweeted, the S in ESG stands for satanic. Last month, Musk said he'd been invited to the WEF, but that he declined. This year's WEF gathering runs until Friday. A recent Twitter files drop shows the pharmaceutical industry apparently trying to influence social media, especially when it came to vaccine-related content. It appears pharmaceutical giants like Pfizer and Moderna were working to ensure corporate dominance over the vaccines. A key part of this was preventing others from reproducing them. This way, they're the only ones making profit. Normally, companies that invent a new, a new medicine have a patent on it so that they can profit off of it. This incentivizes companies to create new medicines. But eventually, every patent expires. Other companies can then copy their formula after they expire. These copied drugs are called generics, and they're usually far cheaper than the original. One company, BioNTech, directly asked Twitter to censor users asking for generics. Specifically, it asked Twitter to hide its account for two days. This way, activists couldn't tweet at its account regarding, quote, fair COVID-19 vaccine distribution. The activists wanted generic low-cost vaccines for poor countries. If the patents were rescinded, countries across the world would be able to make generic vaccines and sell at lower costs. Twitter then monitored the accounts of BioNTech, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and Moderna to shield them from activists. In the end, of course, COVID-19 vaccine recipes were not shared across the world. We spoke to healthcare attorney Harry Nelson. He finds what Big Pharma did disappointing, but not surprising. It seems that they are putting their financial interests ahead of the priority of, of, of keeping people 
alive of preventing death. So I, I, I think this is a place where you would hope that whoever's making decisions for the large pharmaceuticals might consider, you know, a humanitarian perspective, but they're within their rights to make their case. Pfizer and BioNTech sold $37 billion worth of vaccines just in 2021. Moderna sold nearly $18 billion worth, and it's going to raise the price of its vaccine by around 400%. Big Pharma also tried to censor content in other ways. One main method was through a nonprofit called the Public Good Projects, or PGP. It specializes in large-scale media monitoring programs. Now, this is straight from their website. Pharma firms gave PGP over a million dollars to be used for content moderation. PGP then worked closely with Twitter to do this. It requested Twitter to label or outright remove content that criticized vaccine passports and vaccine mandates. One example is this tweet from MIT research scientist Stephanie Seneff. She wrote in a tweet that was critical of the vaccine passports. She said, quote, If a vaccinated person and an unvaccinated person have roughly the same capacity to carry, shed, and transmit the virus, particularly in its Delta form, what difference does implementing a vaccination passport actually make to the spread of the virus? PGP apparently took issue with this tweet. PGP would also frequently email Twitter directly. These emails involved requests to take down or verify lists of tweets. One such email began with, please see attached for this week's misinfo report. We spoke to Dr. Richard Ammerling. He has a deep understanding of the big pharma industry. Here's what he said. It's a very immoral industry, frankly. They are out there to make as much money as they possibly can. And they always claim that they have the interests of patients uh, at heart. And that is simply untrue. There's tons of fraud. There's tons of uh, illegal marketing that they have been accused of and found guilty of and have paid a huge amount of money in fines for. Matt Staver is the founder and chairman of the Liberty Council, a Christian ministry that's experienced censorship itself. He can vouch from that experience that Twitter had indeed become a platform that's used by organizations to censor truth. It's better than it has been in the past. Uh, Under Elon Musk, uh, he had the transparency to reveal some of the censorship. While we suspected that it happened, we didn't have the absolute proof that it indeed did happen. Now we have the proof. Meanwhile, the Twitter files aren't over yet. More episodes will be out soon from Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger, Barry Weiss, and the Free Press. Moving on to China. The reports are in, and the country's 2022 economic growth slumped to one of its worst levels in nearly half a century. The world's number two economy grew by just 3% in 2022, less than half of the previous year's 8.1%. That's based on official data. It marks the second lowest annual rate since at least the 1970s, beaten only by 2020 when growth fell to 2.4% at the start of the pandemic. In particular, last year's fourth quarter was hit hard by a property market slump, strict COVID-19 curbs, and later an abrupt rollback of lockdown rules that has led to surging infections and temporary labor shortage and supply chain disruptions. Now, to boost the economy, China's top leaders have pledged to focus on expanding consumption, aiming to help support domestic demand. What's more, authorities rolled out new policies to target home buyers and property developers. 
This looks to address a long-running liquidity squeeze for developers and the delayed completion of many housing projects. Some experts paint a brighter picture, though, for the Chinese economy in 2023, predicting new growth in the second quarter. Others are more cautious. The World Bank cut its 2023 growth outlook for China to 4.3 percent from a forecast in June of 5.2 percent. And other than slower growth, China's population decline could be a bigger problem facing China's economy. China's population shrank in 2022 for the first time in more than 60 years. This is a new milestone in the country's deepening demographic crisis. China's National Bureau of Statistics announced Tuesday that the population declined by some 850,000 people in 2022. It now stands at 1.411 billion. The birth rate also fell to record low at 6.77 births per 1,000 people. About a million fewer babies were born last year compared to the previous year. There were more than 10 million deaths in China last year with around 9 billion births. Online searches for baby strollers were down over 40 percent from 2018 to now, according to Chinese search engine Baidu. This demographic crisis has been a key concern for policymakers. It's expected to have an increasing impact on Chinese growth in the years to come. Beijing scrapped its decades-long and highly controversial one-child policy in 2015. It realized the restrictive policy had contributed to a rapidly aging population and shrinking workforce. And this could severely distress the country's economic and social stability. To try to stop the falling birth rate, Beijing announced in 2015 that it would allow married couples to have two children, but the national birth rate continued to fall. Policymakers further relaxed limits on births in 2021, allowing three children. But those efforts have been a hard sell amid the high cost of living and looming economic uncertainty. And now joining me is William Ruger, the president of the American Institute for Economic Research. So now, Will, China's economy, its power is partly because of its population. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. So is it a big deal that China's population is declining? I think it's a bellwether for changes that are happening within China, and they do have ramifications. But look, states and peoples are adaptive as well. Uh, The question really, though, is how much we can trust Chinese numbers, period. Uh, But I do think that this is something that's happening across lots of advanced economies as well, where we're seeing uh, birth rates go down. And so it's not surprising that as China has become wealthier, that uh, this would have an effect uh, demographically. The challenge for China, of course, is that it's a graying society, and and will this affect their economic health going forward, particularly as you have more people that are older than the young people who are oftentimes having to support them. Do you think this is at all reversible, or are they just going to go down this uh, this trend? I think it's hard to reverse. Some of the evidence we've seen from Western Europe is that you can have more pro-fertility policies, uh, but they're they're going to have effects on the margins. It's hard to turn this around dramatically. Uh, now, you know, China being a more authoritarian regime, uh, you know, may have different levers it can try to press here. Uh, But again, there are bigger macro variables that are in play here that are affecting this. And again, there are lingering effects of the types of policies that China has been pursuing for for many decades here. So, again, it's not going to be like, you know, turning around the big ship on a dime. Mm, Right. What factors do you think played into this this decline? 
again, I, I think you can't underestimate the one-child policy, but also the kind of culture that that developed around that. Uh, we forget sometimes, knowing how large China's economy is, is that it still has problems when it comes to per capita GDP. It's still falling far behind a country like the United States, which has very high per capita GDP, as well as, because of our population size, a very large overall economy. And, uh, and while that overall size of the economy relates to issues that relate to geostrategic competition, right, you have to have a certain amount of wealth in order to be able to sustain, say, military power. Uh, it's also the case that there is a challenge for China in particular in terms of that per capita GDP. It needs to become wealthier than it is in order, I think, to, uh, to meet its needs going forward. Do you think China's getting older before it can get rich? Yeah, I mean, that's the worry that a lot of people, I think, in the Chinese leadership should have. Again, it's not my job to figure out China's problems here. And in fact, uh, one of the challenges for the West, at least, is that as China has been rising, that has created its own tr troubles uh, in terms of geopolitical competition. Uh, and so maybe this, uh, in some ways, uh, may uh, reduce uh, uh, some of the uh, incipientness of the challenge, right? Because while China's a rising power, it still is not a superpower the same way that the United States is. And that relates both to per capita GDP, but also other factors, uh, including their demographic challenges. Mm. All right. Thank you very much for your insight today. William Ruger, president of AIER. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And on Wall Street, U.S. stocks ended mixed today. The Dow lost 392 points or one and one tenths of a percent. S&P fell eight points or two tenths of a percent, while the Nasdaq gained 16 points or one tenths of one percent. Apple is launching new MacBooks equipped what it says are its most powerful processors to date. Now it's time to debut the next chip in the M2 family. Introducing M2 Pro. M2 Pro cranks up the performance of our Pro systems yet again. To create our next generation Pro Silicon, we started with the supercharged building blocks of M2 and scaled up its architecture to deliver the powerful M2 Pro. Apple says the new chips promise improved performance and added that the new MacBook Pro has up to 22 hours of battery life. Customers will be able to purchase 14-inch and 16-inch Mac Pro laptops with the company's M2 Pro or M2 Max chips. The 14-inch model is priced at just under $2,000, and the 16-inch model is listed for just under $2,500. Both laptops will be available for purchase starting January 24th. Customers can also pre-order both models starting today. Radius AI was at the National Retail Show in New York City. NTD's Sean Marshall caught up with the company's two CEOs to learn how their systems work. A number of retail stores are attempting to get rid of human cashiers from retail store checkouts. But Radius AI, a company that implements AI into the checkout experience and collects customer data, says they want to keep the human interaction. Their display setup contains cameras at the register that automatically scan products and cameras that track customers and keep data on everything they do in the store. We now today are doing one of the largest deployments in the United States with computer vision, doing the full lot and the store analytics. You might not see it, but we actually have two cameras up here doing live analytics and we're displaying them on this dashboard. So we're illustrating how many people have been outside of the booth area. 
Then how many people came in the booth, how many people went through the shopping experience, and then our transaction times. And so that's all happening in real time. Because of laws in different areas, a cashier must be present for certain items. So Radius AI has worked the cashier to customer experience into their system. Uh, so if you want to buy, for instance, something that's behind the counter, such as a tobacco product or a lottery ticket uh, that requires uh, human help, we're able to um, very smoothly transition to uh, the behind-the-counter cashier. Uh, and um, uh, the automated part is done. All the cashier has to do is the part that the technology cannot do because of le uh, legislation. Their system set up at NRF was able to track what items customers pick up before they reach the register. So in our model, it's interesting now, a little fun NRF since we want to keep this interesting. All of our alcohol is now gone. So we've these people come through the shopping experience and alcohol is very popular here at NRF. I know it's dry January, but not for some folks. So um, we actually can't show you alcohol right now because we have to stock the booth with more. Sean Marshall, NTD News. And Goldman Sachs reported a staggering 69% drop in fourth quarter profits today. The Wall Street firm is struggling amid a slowdown in deal-making and slumping wealth management business. Goldman's quarterly profit was about $1.2 billion, far short of analyst estimates of nearly $5.5 billion, according to Refinitiv IBES data. One analyst, Octavio Marenzi, put it bluntly, quote, Widely expected to be awful, Goldman Sachs' Q4 results were even more miserable than anticipated. Wall Street banks are making deep cuts to their workforce. They're also streamlining their operations as steel-making activity. Their major source of revenue stalls on worries over a weakening global economy and rising interest rates. Goldman's investment banking fees fell 48% in the latest quarter, while revenue from its asset and wealth management unit dropped 27% due to lower revenue from equity and debt investments. And Americans who use buy now, pay later for purchases are more likely to default on payments. That's according to a recent survey by business management consultant CG42. But most respondents said they plan to keep using it for larger purchases. 84% said they use buy now, pay later for things they couldn't afford otherwise. Those users are twice as likely to miss a payment, according to the study. The survey also found that 20% used the payment method for groceries, and 46% of those used the method for most or all of the time. According to the report, buy now, pay later consumers are 40% less wealthy than non-users. Taking a break now, but if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at ntd.com. Still to come, what's in store for the housing market this year? An economist and the head of a mortgage lending company weigh in. And Chevrolet coming out with a hybrid version of the Corvette, just in time for its 70th birthday. That and more coming up on NTD Business. And welcome back. Freshwater fish containing dangerously high levels of synthetic toxins. That's according to scientists at Environmental Working Group. It's a nonprofit environmental health organization. 
They looked at data from the Environmental Protection Agency's National Rivers and Streams Assessment and a Great Lakes study. The EWG scientists say it shows that forever chemicals have gotten into our fresh water and accumulated in fish in high concentrations. Known as PFAS and PFAS, manufacturers used the chemicals in the 1950s to make consumer products non-stick and stain-resistant. After they were linked to high cholesterol and cancer and various chronic diseases in the early 2000s, U.S. companies stopped using them, and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration phased them out of food packaging in 2016. Based on the study's findings, the scientists urged people who fish fresh waters for sport to strongly consider releasing their catch instead of eating them. Chevrolet is celebrating Corvette's 70th birthday with a hybrid version of the iconic sports car. And it's the fastest production model yet, NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. The E-Ray yanks your head back as it goes from 0 to 60 miles per hour in 2.5 seconds. It can cover a quarter mile in just 10.5 seconds. So I'm sure it's going to drive like a bat out of hell as well as have, you know, a full EV mode and a few other things that are, that are a neat trick. The E-Ray is a gas-electric hybrid, the first all-wheel drive version of the Corvette. The front wheels run on a battery. This car's mission is to go fast. <laughs> and um, a, hybrid tra- a hybrid of matching the electric motor in the front and the, the ICE in the rear is meant to go fast. Um, yes, it has some benefits of being slightly more environmentally friendly, but this is This is not a Prius. The 2024 Corvette E-Ray goes on sale this year with an MSRP of about $104,000 for the 1LZ Coupe. It's a pretty elegant solution um, that that a few automakers have taken um, and this is going to propel the the Corvette to, uh, to a new set of markets. The iconic sports car made its debut in 1953 at Motorama in New York City and it's come a long way. Corvette has never meant Um, anachronism or sticking to the past. A Corvette has been the best of what General Motors can do in a sports car. Production will take place at General Motors Bowling Green Assembly Facility in Kentucky. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Last year was a wild ride for the U.S. housing market, so what's in store for 2023? Economists and the CEO of the largest mortgaging lending company in the U.S. weigh in on what we can expect this year. Let's take a look. When it comes to the housing market, are we in for another roller coaster ride in 2023? Next 12, 18, 24 months in housing is going to be it's going to be difficult. Last year, mortgage rates doubled, sales plummeted, and many would-be buyers and sellers were sidelined. In recent months, home prices have cooled off from their blockbuster gains from spring 2020 to the spring of 2022, when home prices rose nearly 40%. House prices rose very strongly during much of the pandemic and we're just retracing some of those price gains. Economist Mark Zandi says the direction of the market this year will be determined by the inventory, the broader economy, and mortgage rates. According to Freddie Mac, the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage averaged 6.33% in the week ending January 12th. That's down from 7.08% last fall, but well above 3.45% from a year ago. The CEO of Rocket Mortgage says relatively high mortgage rates have caused homeowners to reconsider selling their homes, and that's leading to higher competition for those fewer homes on the market. But we're not seeing 
you know, 15 offers on one home at this point in time. We're starting to see prices come down a little bit in certain markets. So when would be a good time to buy a home this year? Experts say avoid the spring selling season when homes tend to sell for a seasonal premium when buyers are committed to getting it done. And if you're waiting for prices to get back down, some experts say you could be left holding your breath. I wouldn't say it's a necessarily a buyer's market yet. What I would say is it's a pretty even market between buyer and seller. Realtor.com is predicting prices will rise about 5% this year. However, John Burns Real Estate Consulting is predicting a decline of as much as 22% compared to the peak in 2022. And that's all today from the NTD business team and myself, Don Ma. You can follow me on Twitter if you're there. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at NTD.com. That's all for today. Thank you for watching and we'll see you tomorrow.